This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Reggie Ray. Reggie is carrying on the lineage of the great Tibetan Buddhist meditation teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. On the faculty of Naropa University since its inception, he is president and spiritual director of the Dharma Ocean Foundation, based in Crestone, Colorado. He's the author of several books, including Touching Enlightenment, Finding Realization in the Body, as well as the Sounds True audio learning programs, Meditating with the Body, and Buddhist Tantra. As a personal student of Reggie Ray, he and I decided that for this episode of Insights at the Edge, I would ask him a series of challenging, difficult questions. So here we go. Hard questions for a Vajra Master with Reggie Ray. This is an unusual Insights at the Edge recording because I am sitting here with the person who is my teacher, my meditation teacher. For the last seven and a half years, Reggie, you and I have worked together. And most of the people that I interview are sounds true authors that I've learned a lot from and who in some ways I may consider teachers, but not the same kind of formal relationship that you and I have. And you've asked me to uh, ask you hard questions, not just because you're someone I have a great deal of respect and a special relationship with to just sort of throw you underhand softballs, but to, you know, throw out the hardballs. Mm -hmm. So here we go. Mm -hmm. I spoke to some of my friends and said, what are the hard questions you would ask Reggie? And I spoke to four people and all four of them led with this question. (laughs) Reggie is a self-proclaimed Vajra master. And perhaps you can explain to our listeners what a Vajra master is. Mm -hmm. But he didn't receive that empowerment from a living teacher. He claimed it in a way. And isn't that arrogant and suspect? Well, first of all, I'm part of a lineage. And my teacher was Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And his story was that he started teaching in ways that the Tibetan tradition didn't like. And he was stripped of his status, and he was uh, even proclaimed crazy, arrogant, insane, things far worse than people say about me. And he came to realize that he had experience that needed to be shared with other people, and that other people could benefit greatly from what he had learned through his practice and through his his lifetime of working with Buddhism, and he taught anyway. And so that's my teacher. He had that history. And later, Tibetan Buddhism, when they saw how successful he was, they came back 
and acknowledged him. But that was about six years after he had been thrown out of the tradition, literally thrown out. The other thing is when he taught me in the early 70s, I met him in 1970, he told me and his other early students, I'm training you to be teachers in the same way that I am. And my expectation is that you will have students someday the way I do, and you will teach them as I do. And that was something that um, a whole generation heard. Later, his, after he died, and before he was able to empower anybody except one person that uh, he had chosen fairly early to teach in that way, the organization that he found began to become very, very conservative, which often happens in the second generation after a great teacher dies. And to this day, out of maybe 12,000 people, there isn't one single person, one single Western person who's been given permission to present the full lineage, the way it's done in Zen and the way it's done in Theravada and Pure Lumen and all the other Buddhist traditions. So I was the first one to say, my teacher wanted me to share with other people everything that I have and everything I learned from him, but now there are others and there, there are other people of the same generation who are beginning to teach and beginning to share what they know. Who, who are you referring to? These are not people I would name. These are people who are um, doing things maybe sometimes undercover, maybe they're beginning, but they would become targets, you know, if I mention them. Okay. But it is also interesting that in the Buddha's days, same exact story. I mean, he achieved a certain level of understanding, and he felt, I need to help people. That was his motivation. Nobody said, you're enlightened. Nobody gave him permission. He just went and started teaching. And that, in fact, is often how it happens in Buddhism, surprisingly enough, that you don't get the stamp of the Vatican, so to speak. You teach because you care about other people and you have something to offer. And within the, within the tradition that I've been brought up in, which is the Mahayana, which emphasizes compassion, if somebody wants teaching from you and you have the capacity to help them and you don't, for whatever reason, even if the institution has told you you can't do it, you're breaking your vow. You have to teach whatever the personal cost to yourself. And in my case, the personal cost was I was thrown out of the community that I grew up in and that I helped found, grew up in, and contributed mm -hmm. to for 30 years. Don't you think, though, there's a risk that if somebody is self-proclaimed that there aren't the same checks and balances in the system? There isn't somebody saying, hey, you know, let me give you some feedback on X, because there's, you know, they sort of birthed themselves. The risks in being a spiritual teacher, whether or not you have people telling you you have permission, are huge. And my feeling is, looking at myself and other teachers, including the Tibetan teachers and you know, Western teachers, is that being a spiritual teacher is inherently narcissistic. Meaning that you think what you're doing is the most important thing in the world and you think you're the most important person in the world because of all the adulation you get from the people around you. And that's hugely risky. It's hugely risky. And how do we work with that? I don't know. One of the ways is to have a network. And in my case, I do have a, you know, a very wide network of other spiritual teachers um, in America, mostly North America, who, with whom I stay in touch and you know, we talk and we sort of question each other, and it's very, very important to me. I wish there were more Tibetan Buddhist Western teachers because most of my friends are in Zen and Theravada. They're not Tibetans because nobody's empowered you know, by the Tibetan community. No Westerners are empowered, or very, very few.
So I would like that, but I don't really have it. Now, I mentioned this term, Vajra Master. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you explain for, to people what that is? Vajra Master is like a Roshi in Zen Buddhism. It's like a Tara in Theravada Buddhism. It means a person who is empowered to, you know, by the lineage. And, you know, I don't accept the fact that I'm self-proclaimed at all. I mean, Trogim Trungpa basically told me when he was alive that eventually I would have to do what I'm doing. So I don't accept the self-proclaimed thing. But a Vajra master is a person who accepts responsibility for passing on the full lineage of Tibetan Buddhism to other people. And the relationship is a very naked one with students, meaning that often in organized religion, you know, a teacher will be on a throne, a teacher will put him or herself above the other people, a teacher will keep his or her personal life private and allow all of the projections that students have uh, in them to come out and they don't challenge the projections often. A Vajra Master is a person who doesn't do that, who is an absolutely stripped down human being in their intention and that they share everything they are with their students and they share their experience of life, of reality. And that experience, you know, as we know, the more we practice, the more raw and naked and awakened and terrifying and joyful it is. And that's the job of the Vajra Master, to share that with his or her students and also to help the students grow into that very vast experience of what is. Mm -hmm. So there are no uh, particular, uh, it's, not a, it's not a status situation at all. It's a human situation. It's eye-to-eye -eye situation with one's students, as you know very well. Well, you know, interestingly, when I talk to people, mm. and even as I introduced you here as my teacher in a kind of formal sense, mm. what I notice is that lots of people, uh, sounds true listeners and others, recoil in a way. Mm -hmm. Why is an intelligent woman like <clears throat> Tammy giving her authority to somebody else? Mm -hmm. She must have some kind of, you know, Oedipal needs from childhood that haven't been worked out, etc., etc. Yeah. Could you say, I mean, this Vajra master, is he actually a guru? Like, what's going on here? All of us give our power away to people all over the universe. We give them to our spouses, we give them to our bosses, we give them to people we look up to. Everybody gives away power. And the job of the Vajra Master is to refuse to take your power. Refuse and turn it back on you. Hold up the mirror. You have the power, and if you try to give it to me, I'm going to give it back to you. And I will find ways to do it. So our notion of a guru is pretty accurate. That is what happens in our culture. I mean, people give away their intelligence, they give away their power, they give away their authority to other people, and especially to so-called gurus. But that's not, that's not what we're doing, and that's not what this lineage is about. It's about helping people to, to cease and desist in that process. Everybody gives away power, and that's the fundamental problem with all of us, and that's why we suffer. So the Vajrayana, which is my tradition, is all about helping people come into the fullness of human power, what that means. Now you do ask your formal students to make a certain kind of commitment. Mm -hmm. Why? The hardest thing in the world is to come into the person that we are most fundamentally. The hardest thing in the world is to become who we are. Everybody wants to become who they are, but very few people are willing to actually do it. It's a very, very, very challenging journey. 
And who we are is in constantly opening, expanding, and becoming more naked, more vast, more raw, and including a, a fuller and fuller range of human experience. And we can't do it ourselves. There's too much potential for self-deception and trying to hang out in spirituality as a comfort zone. And my experience with Chogyam Trungpa was he was relentless in stripping away my protective barriers. And I realized that I actually needed that. I needed somebody else to work with me. And that's my role with my students. My sense is if you don't commit to the journey, you know, your own journey and finding out who you are and make that commitment with another person or with a community, um, chances are you're, you're going to quit somewhere along the way. So what I say to my students is once you step into this tradition fully, you have to see it through. And we're going to, I'm going to commit that I will be with you for life and I want you to commit to me that you'll be with me for life. And the nature of that commitment is not particularly that you're going to be uh, giving me money or be an administrator. That's or, good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, do anything like that. But the commitment is a commitment to openness and nakedness. And that um, neither one of us is, it, we're both committed to coming out from our hiding places and being together in a totally human way. And that's the commitment. Now, there's a teacher named A.H. Almas. Yes. That's his pen name, is mm -hmm. Hamid. Mm -hmm. And I have a great deal of respect for him. Mm -hmm. and I, the, as I do too. In the yes. course of interviewing him for three days, mm -hmm. I asked him this question about uh, the role of the teacher. Mm -hmm. And it was the only time during the whole interview that he got fierce in a certain... I mean, we spent three days together, so this mm -hmm. was the only moment in nine hours of conversation. Mm -hmm. And he just looked at me and he said, Tammy, only one in 10,000 people can find their way without a teacher. I thought this was a, a huge gauntlet to throw down. And I'm wondering what you think about that. I agree with him. And I would say maybe not even one in 10,000. I'd say maybe one in a million. I can imagine that there is, uh, again, a kind of recoiling from the perspective of the listener of, oh, great, you know, now I have to like sign on with a cult in order to go the whole way. I don't accept this. This is, you know, this is just cult speak. This is from teachers who want people to be joiners. Trungpa Rinpoche once um, said to me, the job of the teacher is to insult the student. Now, insulting doesn't mean being rude or impolite, but what it means is the teacher is the one person on the planet that won't go along with our self-deception. And I would say for every student that comes and studies with me, there are 10 they go away because that's not what they want. Or more, maybe. <laughs> or more. Yeah, maybe we're into the hundreds, actually. <laughs> and I think, you know, the idea that an authentic teacher is trying to just get numbers is ridiculous. I mean, please, somebody, study the history of religion. Study the history of spirituality. In every generation, there are authentic teachers, and there are in this generation. People have to find an authentic teacher. I grant you that. You can't just go sign up for anything and think it's going to work. And probably in our culture, for every authentic teacher, there are uh, 500 frauds or charlatans or people who are proclaiming themselves in ways that are, are not true. And, you know, so it is, a, it is a dangerous situation. It's a charnel ground, and we have to be discriminating. But that doesn't mean that we don't, when we find the right person, that we can just pass that person by. No, when we find the right person, we have to go for it. 
the right person that's the right person for each individual. Right? Well, yeah, there has to be a karmic connection. There has to be a sense of we can work together, and there's a sense of seeing one another, but also a, an authentic teacher. You can have very strong connections with uh, very messed up people. So we're not talking about just whoever you feel like, you know, you like that person, but is this a person who really holds some kind of bright light, you know, that can really help you? Which brings up the second most common question that mm. the four people I surveyed mm. of difficult questions wanted mm. me to ask you, mm. which is, so is Reggie enlightened and is he creating enlightened students? Um, <clears throat> the question is, um, it's a bogus question, really. It is the question people have. Yes, so people lots do. of people have this question. It's they, they're all holding a bogus question. Yeah, well, let, well let's talk about it. I mean, okay. first of all, the, the concept of enlightenment is, uh, it has a false premise, which means that we can set up something. I mean, if we have a term, the term has a meaning, the term has a definition. Yeah. And everybody has a different idea about enlightenment. And you can easily find that out by asking 100 people what enlightenment is, and you get 100 different answers. So to say is so-and-so enlightened, um, it's meaningless for that reason, that, that there's no agreed-upon definition. And the other problem is that enlightenment presupposes that uh, whatever we want to say, realization, is a fixed state that you enter, and it isn't. All of us have within us the potential for um, the heights of spiritual realization, that have been attained by all the great teachers. We all have that within us. All of us can do that. But it's not a fixed state. It's a state that's in process. And we, we grow as humans and we become vaster and vaster and vaster in terms of our ability to appreciate the beauty and the sacredness and the openness of the world, our ability to love other people. So when we say, um, you know, we could say enlightenment is a state of perfection. Let's just use that as a possible definition. Um, have I reached a state of perfection? Have you reached a state of perfection? Has anyone else reached a state of perfection? Perfection is something that actually all of us embody at this moment. All of us do. All people on the planet are in a state of uh, beatitude. The only problem is we don't see it. We don't see that the life that we have at this moment is everything is, is an experience of the universe delivering itself completely and fully without remainder. And that the person that we are now and the experience we have now contains all of the fulfillment that has ever been possible to humans. So our problem is not that we're enlightened by that definition. Our problem is that we don't really see it. And the process of spirituality is stripping away all of our defenses against reality so that we become completely vulnerable to the person that we are and completely vulnerable to our lives. And when we do that, the more we do it, then the more realization we experience moment by moment by moment. In my case, I'm on the journey like everybody else, but I will say there's been a transformation in my own experience of the perfection of the world and the beauty and perfection of my own life that was unimaginable to me when I was younger. And I think that, you know, that's as far as I'll go. And do I still have things to work on? 
Absolutely. And one of the things that the uh, tradition says is, Buddhist tradition is, when you reach the end of the road, when there's nothing more to see, when you live in that state of beatitude, in that moment you die, because there's no reason to live. The idea that there are people walking around in some kind of perfect uh, state um, doesn't make any sense, at least within the Buddhist tradition. But uh, and your answer was very beautiful, but mm -hmm. I'm still wondering if there's a slight dodge in it, a little bit. I mean, don't you think, Reggie, you could say that there are certain thresholds that people pass through mm -hmm. that we could call a, uh, a level of enlightenment? I don't like the term enlightenment. You know, enlightenment's not a Buddhist term. There's no term in Buddhism that corresponds to it. It was invented by perfectionists who live in the 18th century in the West. It doesn't really, it doesn't have any, um, it doesn't have any analog. I mean, tell me, what do you mean by enlightenment? Maybe we should go there. What do you mean by it? Well, it's not a term I'm comfortable with either because, <laughs> okay. and it's, I'm not comfortable with it for the reason that you said, which is there are so many different meanings. Mm. Uh, a, a, let's try this, a state where self-identification does not arise. That would be a horrible, horrible state to be in for a human being. It would be terrible. It would be pernicious. It would be damaging. It would be hurtful. The whole notion of, um, we could talk about non-duality, and there are many people that walk around and claim that they've experienced or they dwell in a state of non-duality in a kind of permanent way. But the interesting thing... We published several of them, by the way. Anyway. <laughs> yes, I understand. Okay. I'm just, just not going. That's right. That's right. Yeah. There are many, many different kinds of experiences of non-duality. There's the experience of non-duality where the mind is still and there's not much happening that's small. And then there are experiences that are medium. And then there are experiences of non-duality that are quite vast. And I'm sitting here and I'm experiencing, you know, openness and, um, you know, the mind being completely empty. And then there are experiences of non-duality where the reference point of human experience disappears altogether. And that final state, um, nobody can live in. I mean, that's not something that humans do. And when you get to that point, you're long since not incarnating as a human. This is Buddhist tradition. So the idea of um, being in that state as a human, I mean, you could say, what's wrong with that? You know, because I'm saying that's really problematic if you define it that way, that the self-reference point disappears. The way that we, you know, a person who experiences non-duality and has unresolved trauma in their life, which is true of all humans, all of us have unresolved trauma, the extent to which you have unresolved trauma, that's how limited your experience of non-duality is going to be. The only way you can actually extend and expand your experience of non-duality is by working with trauma. And what trauma is, from a Buddhist point of view, is that your self-identification from two or four or five or whatever age you want to talk about comes to the surface and you experience yourself as separate from your world. And you live with that, and by living with it and experiencing it and not withdrawing from the sense of separation, you resolve that trauma and your awareness becomes that much bigger. So the whole path is, if you figured out a way to not experience self-identification and separation from your world, you are in deep trouble because you're not growing anymore, if that makes sense. But if the spiritual journey is one of resolving those traumas, facing mm -hmm. them, having them come up, releasing them. Is there not a point where all of our trauma is resolved? 
It's a theoretical endpoint. It's a receding horizon. You're dead. You die. So in, in this view, you don't, there's no living human who could be fully, quote-unquote, enlightened, meaning all of their unconscious trauma has been resolved and released and liberated. Yeah, I mean, obviously. I mean, we have to resolve every moment of our life that is not spent experiencing our lives fully, you know, without pulling back, is creating more traumatic response. And the ego itself is a traumatic response in every layer of ego, every moment since we probably were conceived, we've been building trauma. And, you know, in my case, you could say, well, you know, this sounds interesting, but why do you, like, why are you saying this? Um, I've known really quite well, and one, you know, Chogyam Trungpa I knew very, very well, and I've known other, a few other uh, Tibetan teachers that I consider at the top of the pile in terms of realization. And they have basically said, the more realized they are, the more they say, you know, I'm just a human and I'm just working on myself and um, I'm on the journey. And one thing Chogyam Trungpa said that deeply impressed me, he said, don't ever trust anybody that tells you they're enlightened. And the reason not to trust them is not simply because there's a lot of self-deception, but they won't help you. Because they're setting a goal up that is going to stall you and impede your path by uh, supposing that they're beyond the journey and they're beyond digging deeper and deeper and deeper. In Buddhism, we have this notion of the unconscious. And it includes not only our human life, but the, the, our lives as animals and going all the way back to the beginning of life itself. And all of that is a traumatic structure. And we have to, layer by layer by layer, we have to resolve it. What do you mean all of that is a traumatic structure? Meaning that we have to go back, not even and resolve all our trauma in this life, but all, our, all the traumas, all the pulling back, all the separations that have occurred all the way back through the animal kingdom. I mean, it's, in other words, the unconscious in, in Buddhism is, is almost limitless. And all of that has to be made conscious. And the notion that any person walking around has done that, in, in my opinion, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And then there's the question, how are your students doing? Um, what do you think? I don't know if I'm the right person to ask, Reggie. I'm asking you. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's hard. I I'd mean, say it's a mixed bag, if you want to know my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I think those who practice have grown hugely. And I would include you in that number, you know. I've seen many of my students change, become different people. And I feel, um, often, I feel incredibly honored that I get to witness the unfolding of these people. There are a lot of people in our community that for one reason or another don't practice very much and the fruits, you know, are coming much more slowly. And there are some people who are suffering very greatly and um, have come because they're welcomed and they're loved. And the transformation there is uh, maybe there won't be that much in this life. I mean, any community like ours, like Dharma Ocean, holds the full range of human possibility and potential. But the ones that are digging in, you know, I feel happy that uh, they're getting it and I don't feel like I have to hold back at all. One of the questions that I heard from a couple of my 
friends here, people mm -hmm. who are not your students, mm -hmm. who, who said, you know, I like Reggie, I like what he's teaching, there's a lot there, mm -hmm. but I'm really not interested in the Tibetan Buddhist forms. Mm -hmm. I just don't relate to them. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned that if I studied more closely with Reggie, this would be a barrier. How could I do it? I mean, I'm not going to work with various deity formations and Tibetan Buddhist liturgies and, you know, so forget it. I'm, I'm going to go someplace else. And the, the question, I guess, to you is, where do you see the tradition evolving, given that a lot of people do have that response to a lot of the Tibetan Buddhist forms? Well, as you know, there are two aspects to Tibetan Buddhism. One of them is very symbolic, very ritualistic, um, involves a lot of visualization and a lot of, um, you know, long uh, liturgies. But the other one is, and, th and that's the deity practice that people are referring to, but the other one, which is called Mahamudra, which means the Great Awakening, or Dzogchen, which means complete perfection. These are two, um, what I would say, formless traditions. I mean, those, to me, you know, they're, they're similar to Zen, but they have a kind of Vajrayana edge, meaning there's a, a much more intimate interest in relative reality and in digging into it and unveiling it. But it's a form, these are formless traditions. And I feel these parts of Tibetan Buddhism are the ones that are most appropriate for the West and the ones that I'm now and in the future I'm going to emphasize. So I feel, you know, the I'm kind of with people that the ornate... Baroque um, aspect of Tibetan Buddhism may not really be that helpful for modern people. I, I agree with that. How do you separate out what parts of Tibetan Buddhism are culturally based and which parts are more the essence of the tradition that need to be uh, preserved going into the future? How do you parse that out? Well, Chogyam Trungpa, my teacher, basically said, let's, let's jettison all of the cultural forms of the tradition that are not really inherent in Buddhism, such as the patriarchal nature of the tradition, the um, extreme emphasis on hierarchy, um, bowing down to the lamas as higher people, um, going to the lama and letting the lama, you know, uh, tell you how to live your life. You know, all of these things that are very much part of the cultural tradition, he himself jettisoned, so I didn't inherit that. What I inherited was the actual Vajrayana practices, which interestingly enough don't really come from Tibet, they come from India. And they were taken to Tibet and developed, but the, the fundamental forms were already present in India. So I think, you know, what I'm doing now is not particularly separating out the cultural part, because he did that. But what I'm looking at is this inheritance of the form, you know, the rituals and the symbolism and so on, and the formless practice. You know, what in there is really going to help Western people? And I'm, as I said, I'm going more for the formless practices that are sometimes enhanced by the ritual practices, but not necessary. Okay. Which, you know, in a way makes what I'm doing seem so very different from what goes for Tibetan Buddhism now, because um, most of the, if not all of the Tibetan teachers, all of whom are Tibetan, are really presenting the tradition as it was practiced in Tibet. So people see what I'm doing and they look at that and they don't, it, it seems like a big gulf. But if you look at Chogyam Trungpa, it's not really a big gulf. It's a further extension of what he wanted to do. Is there a way to summarize what you think the essence 
of the tradition is, meaning the essence of this formless tradition that you're wanting to continue and evolve. Is there a way to summarize that for people who aren't familiar? I would say that within every human person, there is already a level of their state of being that is free. You know, we talk about freedom and people think about spiritual freedom and everybody wants to be free. But within our mind, you know, underneath the debris of our conditioning, that freedom is already there. And the purpose of meditation and the purpose of Tibetan Buddhism is to put us in touch with that freedom so that whatever is going on in our lives, whether we're in prison or whether we're the richest person in the world, that freedom is already present and there's no sense of having to look for it. When you experience your own personal freedom and you experience uh, the, a state of being that is you know, truly without impediment and truly without boundaries and without limits, then you can come back and live your life in a very different way. You're no longer looking at your conditioned life to try to find the answers, but your conditioned life becomes an expression of your freedom. And that expression is joy. So it's very human and it's very simple. And, you know, if, again, you know, when we tap into that freedom, then we are awake. There is a part of us that is already awake. And when we look back at our life from that free, open, awake place, we see the perfection of our life and the beauty of everything that goes on with us and with others. And out of that comes love for other people. It's natural and spontaneous. So that's really, I think that's the purpose, you know, initially learning how to live in the freedom, feeling the joy of life, and then being able to share that with other people. It's very human. It's very simple. Now, you mentioned, Reggie, that uh, if somebody had worked out all of the unconscious trauma, mm. going all the way back to, mm. you know, algae or bugs, etc., cetera, mm -hmm. be quite a lot, mm -hmm. they would be dead. Uh, well, there'd be they, no reason to live. They would just die. They would just die. Yeah. So my question is about what happens to the rest of us when we die? What is your view of that? I think the less we say about that, and I don't mean you and me sitting here, but I think the less that religious traditions say about that, the better. The reason being is nobody actually knows. And I think religions in general, and organized religions do it more than uh, you know anybody, when religions set up expectations about what death is going to be like and what happens, it's a huge disservice. And the second disservice is when they set up expectations about what life is like and what we're going to experience, what we should experience, is a huge disservice because the whole point of human experience is it's open and it's unpredictable and I'm quite certain when I die, you know, when I live, I find a constant surprise in my life. And I'm, it's, it's, it's half expectation, it's half um, incredible curiosity, and there's a lot of a sense of uncertainty and openness and the, the, the wonderful fear that goes with meeting your life when you don't know what it's going to be. But I feel that when I die, that's going to be the biggest surprise of all. 
and I look forward to it. And I'm quite certain that all of the things that all the religions say are basically going to turn out to be bogus. But one thing I do feel is that we are in a journey, and we came from somewhere, and we're going somewhere. But that journey is not determined. It's open-ended, and nobody knows anything about it. Nobody actually knows anything about our life. Nobody can tell us what our life is going to be moment to moment. And if we think somebody can tell us, then we have turned off most of what we are. And we've lost touch with the, the total openness and uncertainty and excitement of being alive. So religions, when they provide answers, they're not helpful. When they teach us that there are no answers and there are ways to find out and discover and experience our lives, then they're being helpful. Buddhism at its best gives us the methods and the practices to really open up the intense and limitless mystery of our own life, moment by moment. Now, in your own life, Reggie, I've heard you talk about contact you've had with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche after his death, etc. Mm -hmm. And how do you understand that continuity of consciousness? You're, you're contacting or in dialogue with what, who? who, what, what stream of energy, how do you understand that? Maybe the analogy of shamanic journeying can be helpful, meaning that people are able to, by relaxing and by letting their awareness descend beneath the surface of consciousness, they're able to contact what they call the lower world. And they're able to have contact with beings that are wise beyond the people who are here. Some people would say that's imagination. Well, I don't think we know what it is. I mean, I wouldn't say it's objectively real, and I wouldn't say it's imagination, but we do know that when we descend beneath the chatter of our conscious mind, there's a wisdom that becomes available. We know this, and people experience it in all kinds of different ways, through dreams, you know, through shamanic journeying, through religious visions. And I prefer not to come to any conclusions about what it is, except it's incredibly helpful to those people who have that kind of openness and that kind of experience. And it gives them another and a deeper reference point. Now, is Chogyam Trungpa really there when I see him? I don't know. I mean, is it simply reality that is taking that form to communicate something to me? because that he was my teacher, I don't really know. And I think the less we know, the better. The less, we, the less conclusions we come to about the whole realm of spirituality, the better. Because we're going to be more open and we're going to make a lot more discoveries. I mean, everybody's trying to pin everything down, but that's not helpful. I don't think so. It's like the Enlightenment thing. Let's pin it down. Mm -hmm. It's not helpful. Because spooks. I, wa I want to pin down the spooks. You, know? you want to, but the thing yeah. is about spooks is you can't do that, you know? The thing about Chogyam Trungpa, even in life, I mean, he was a spook even in life, meaning that he's sitting in a chair and you go up to him and all of a sudden you get hit over the back of the head because he's not in the chair, he's behind you. And I think in general, that's how spiritual experience works. The minute you think you've got it, you don't have it. You've lost it. And it's going to come in from some other angle. Okay. Um, you know, you did give me permission to ask the hard question, so I'm going to keep going here, which is what I'm not trying to pin it down, but mm. I'm curious in the last couple of years if mm. you've had personal experiences 
of dialogue or contact with Chogum Trimper Rinpoche and what the import of those experiences have been? Um, I have, through dreams and through, um, you know, putting my mind in that sort of shamanic space. Um, and also through the world, because uh, I often have a sense that um, things that happen are him. You know, things that happen in my life that may not have an image attached to them. Now, what are, what are they? Um, I'll just give you one example. I had a dream a while back that there was a big table and the Buddhist community, uh, my community, was sitting around it. And my peers, the other teachers, were sitting there. And I got up to go to the bathroom. And when I came back, my place was gone. And I thought, I'm excluded, you know. And this was before I left the community that I've been part of. And I turned around, and Chogyam Trungpa was looking at me, and his face was wild, and his eyes were blazing. And there was a sense of um, absolute and utter joy in his face that I lost my place and uh, in the community. And what I understood from that was that that is how I'm going to enter into his mind and become awake like he was awake. It's going to be that way by losing my status, which happened, losing my credentials, which happened, having, you know, 15,000 people hate me because I was no longer one of their main teachers, that, that that was the path for me. And when it happened, I thought back to that dream and I thought, thank you, that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. I needed that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of things like that. It's sort of helping me chart my own course and saying yes when I'm going in the right direction and no when I'm not. And he's, that's the way he was in life and he's still that way for me. So you recently came back from 28 days in a dark retreat. Yes. And I haven't really heard much about it, but my first, well, first, why don't you just tell people what a dark retreat is? What, just what the, what is that situation? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a retreat that is considered uh, something you do after you've been meditating a lot because you need a lot of stability, psychological and you know, meditative stability to do it. And you go into total darkness for periods of time from a week. Um, a month is a, a long time you know, to be in dark, total darkness. And uh, somebody brings you your food and you know, slips it in and you, you have your meals. You have... Uh, other than that, you have nothing. There's nothing to do. There's no practice. There's no, uh, in the type of retreat that I did, all you do is you sit and you look into the darkness and you see what comes up. And what it does is, in my experience, um, is that it removes much of the uh, barrier between the unconscious and the conscious mind so that uh, the, there's always a pressure in the unconscious. Jung, C.G. Jung said, a great psychologist said, the unconscious, the nature of the unconscious is it wants to be conscious. There's a pressure. And to maintain our egos, we're always sort of pushing things down. And what happens in a dark retreat is you're not doing that anymore. And things begin to come up from the depths. And that's the practice, simply relating to what comes up from the depths, from the darkness. And sometimes it comes from very, very deep places, and sometimes it, it doesn't. Can you share with us what happened for you in these 28 days, or some sense of it? 
In meditation practice in general, you know, we alternate between experiencing a tremendous peace and openness, and then there's an upsurge of material to work with. That's the nature of, at least in our tradition, that's the nature of meditation. It's not, it's not always the way meditation is billed or sold to people. Understood. The, the upsurge component yes, of unconscious material. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the geyser of black mud yeah. is essential to the meditative journey. And if, the, if you have gotten into a state of mind where you don't have that, then you're not, you're not going to grow anymore. So within the Vajrayana tradition, we love the peace, we love the openness, we love the, the experience of uh, you know, expansiveness. But when we get really turned on is when the black geyser of mud comes up and we have material to work with and we have experience to resolve, trauma to resolve. And in the dark retreat, that uh, cycle of tremendous openness and peace and stillness and emptiness and then the eruption of unresolved trauma is the nature of the practice. You know? And you do that day in and day out for you know, 28 days and night night in and night out, <laughs> I might add, because <laughs> your sleeping thing is uh, very disrupted, yeah. Now, you know, I'll tell you, um, it's a very difficult uh, situation to be in, and um, because you're pushed to your limit, and then you are pushed beyond your limit, and most of us are not really that easy with being pushed beyond our limit. I went into a couple of states that represent trauma from the age of two. And it's not like I saw the trauma and I was watching it, I became it. I became the two-year-old who had been um, basically ejected from my family. And I experienced everything. I, ex I was the two-year-old and I experienced what that two-year-old was not able to experience at the age of two and just simply pulled back and shut down. And it was horrifying, and one of the episodes lasted for 20 hours. And during that time, because I knew what was going on, which is very important, and I stayed with it, but during that time I had two thoughts. One was, the gates of hell are open. Uh, that kept going through my mind. This is what hell is like. It's just, this is hell. And number two, I felt I'm fighting for my life. And am I going to go insane? Is this going to simply um, sweep me away? But the thing is, I had the practice, and I stayed with it. And the practice is, strangely enough, it's not a technique. It's opening, 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 opening. And whatever fear comes up, you let it go, and you open, and you let yourself go through it. And as last year, the same thing happened last year, um, different traumas, but same thing, I felt truly, when I got on the other side of it, that something fundamental in my state of being had been resolved. And truthfully, I've done a lot of practice, as you know, you know, many, many years of um, solitary retreat. And this is different. And I felt things were resolved in this situation that I've never really been able to get at. So it's very, very powerful and very, very interesting, but it's extraordinarily challenging, you know, for anybody. How would one know if they were ready to go on a dark retreat? You'd have to work with a teacher who's done it. You'd have to meet somebody, talk with them, show your practice. You have to be very stable psychologically. You have to be able to handle a tremendous amount of psychological pain. You have to be able to be with it and not freak. And that, uh, that, takes, that takes a lot, and it takes a lot of practice, and it takes a, you know, a lot of psychological work. 
And you also need to know how to um, rest your mind in emptiness. You need to be able to do it so that you have some place to go um, to create a bigger space for yourself to experience what you're going through. Now, one of the comments I heard from this small group that mm. I surveyed was, you know, interesting that you're going to be talking to Reggie in a program called Insights at the Edge because he's the edge man. He always wants to be on the edge, you know. Look, he's going back into dark retreat. He's always, you know, he's addicted to the edge. He's attached to the edge. Mm. Some sense of, you know, isn't that some sort of like sense of insufficiency that's driving him, that he mm. always wants to be on the edge? Mm. What, what do you think about that? Um, I heard a program recently which I found very intriguing about people who, it's just who they are. They love risk and mm -hmm. they love to take chances. And somehow it's how they express their humanity. And uh, it's apparently like 10% of the population has this in them that it's just who they are. I mean, some people love lying on beaches and soaking up the sun. That's, that's their idea of, you know, the fullness of their life. And other people are explorers and adventurers. And what it is in me, I think, is an appetite to find out what's next and what's over the horizon. And I've always had it. And I had it when I was even a small boy. I had that interest in there was a big dark wood behind us. And I wanted to know what's in the wood and what's on the other side of the wood. And I would take off, you know, at the age of six and just disappear. It's, it's, uh, I think it's genetic. And I think it's part of the human community, that there are certain people that do that. And the thing is, they get killed at a much higher rate than other people, you know, hunters and gatherers, um, all the way down. Um, they're the ones that take the chances. They're the ones that just have it in them. It's just part of who they are. So as with most things in human life that we pathologize, uh, you know, most unusual things in life, we have some comment to make about how it's neurotic or how it's driven by some kind of unfulfilled need. You know, to me, that's ridiculous. Why don't we take the point of view that every person that's born has an expression of humanity that isn't insufficient? And all of the diversity we have in life, I mean, why don't we take the point of view that that's all interesting and it all has functions and it's not fundamentally neurotic? You know, maybe there are uh, ways in which we misuse it, you know, and whatever our gifts or our proclivities are, but um, I don't really go for that. I don't think, you know, when we when we pathologize all these different behaviors and people, I don't think that's very interesting, you know? Mm -hmm. You're just edgy by nature. I enjoy the unknown. I enjoy the darkness. I enjoy meeting. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's, I'm called to it. And my friends are called to it. I mean, the people I work with, most of them have that a similar sort of curiosity about what is beyond my current world, what is beyond my current setup, what is beyond my ego, what's out there, you know, let's find out, I'm curious. As you know, one of the analogies I love most is that human life is like uh, a voyage on a sailing ship, and that most of us spend most of our lives sailing around the harbor and stopping at known points of reference. But there are some of us who look out and we see the opening into the open ocean. And we see oceans that have never been sailed in. And the only thing that we want to do is get out of the harbor and set sail and see sites that have never been seen and visit places that have never been visited. So, you know, that's me. Well, uh, that makes you a perfect guest for Insights at the Edge, mm. Reggie. Thank you. Thank you.
soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>